1: is part four of A Time for Heroes, the conclusion of our recounting of the 1994 season. on Michael Adams, here with a, a very happy Andrew Paskin as he relives the, the glory days of his Canberra Raiders. <laughs>
0: you going, mate? Uh, I've been waiting for this episode since the first one. Well, let, let, final
1: let, let's start there with the build-up. On our last episode, we talked about you feeling very nervous going into this game, which Canberra ended up winning quite easily. Uh, c- can you remember any of your thoughts? What, why you thought you thought Canberra might struggle? Well, I just thought that, that Canterbury had a really good side, and they'd just beaten us
0: recently. And I, uh, I think that was the start of my ongoing anxiety issues as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just remember th- I wasn't overconfident, put it that way. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I, I, I mentioned that I actually thought Cam. I had no doubts in my mind that Camera were going to win, despite uh, that semi-final in, by Canterbury.
0: Yeah, sorry, to interrupt. I, I logically I thought they should win. Yeah. But I, I wasn't going like this is a fate complete. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's funny that reading about the build-up, in the press there was a lot of the sentiment that Canberra would struggle having played like three really bruising semi-finals. Canterbury would benefit from the week off. Within the Canberra environment though, there was a, a real unspoken air of confidence. Mal, Laurie Daly, all all the key players in the game have spoken about going into that game not really having any doubts that they were going to win.
0: <laughs> we're looking, looking back at it, Objectively, why, why wouldn't yeah, they yeah, be? Yeah. <laughs> they both had three grand final appearances, uh, half the squad. Yeah. Then they had the, the best run of the year, 93, until Ricky Short's injury. Mm. Why wouldn't they be confident? Yeah.
1: And the, the fact that it was Mal's last game also had that extra bit of not pressure, but just like, we're winning this game. You know, yeah. we're not going to lose this game.
0: But in saying that, Lomax was a major part of their, their enforcement. Yeah. And uh, as usual, he was suspended. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So Brian Smith, for instance, came out and said Canberra are a jaded football side. Uh they're on the ropes. You know, and I think I think that kind of played into Canberra, if, if anything else. It gave them that underdog status when they so clearly didn't deserve it. Yeah. But uh just I I wanted to to read this out as well. This is uh, a Danny Widler piece from Rugby League Week. It must be early Widler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh he said Canterbury coach Chris Anderson has one message for his Dogs of War this week. Beware the wounded champion. I wasn't following rugby league media as uh, as closely as you were in this era. So when we started this show and you mentioned the, the Dogs of War trope and how often it came up, I didn't realize how often it came up. Like, <laughs> it, it, was, it, was, <laughs> it was crazy reading the stories from this year, from 1994, seeing how often Dogs of War was alluded to. Yeah. Like, it is, it is a great name. I understand it, but like...
0: Well, I mean, it's just it's the nature of the beast. It, it, it's always the low-hanging fruit in yeah. the billy story.
1: And now 25 years later, we, we still haven't gotten <laughs> away from it. So the the other thing in Canberra's favour was their coach, Tim Sheens, who, uh, let, let's just... We didn't get a chance to talk about when we talked about Canberra's squad. Has Kim, Tim Sheens almost become underrated as a coach? I,
0: I really think so. I don't know how it's happened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at his record.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think part of it is that the idea that like anyone could have coached that Canberra team to a comp, which I, I don't know how valid that argument is, but it pro- like his record is probably undermined by the fact that he had such a champion team.
0: I think the Tigers thing goes away to solving that.
1: Yeah. That, that's what I was going to say.
0: But uh, you're right. But I mean, Jesus, like, if he had a bad coach. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want it. Yeah.
1: So I, I think like his record should speak for itself, but it seems to not, I don't think anyone blames him for the Cowboys. Like he was never going to like, you know, do much with that squad.
0: But that's the only place he hasn't had success, Yeah, really. Mm. Australia did, did well, you know. I think Blues didn't do so well. but
1: Well, he never really got a good shot at New South Wales. Like, he was kind of like one and done.
0: I think people in the know know he's, a, he's an all-time great coach. Mm. And I think the public underrated him.
1: Yeah. And it's so funny. Like, he kind of, like, wore out his welcome a, as a coach. Like, he probably stayed at the Tigers too long. I think he definitely stayed at the Tigers too long. Yeah, Like, he pr- probably should have, like, bailed a bit earlier. And it got to the point where when it was clear that he was leaving the Tigers... There was talk of him coming to St George, and I remember going, "Oh, Tim Sheens." Yeah. And now I'm like, Tim Sheens like won multiple <laughs> premierships. He like had success at every level of the game. Like, wouldn't have been a bad get, <laughs> yeah, really.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very good point. I think he's definitely underrated. Mm,
1: but but so going into that week, that grand final week, uh, a lot of the cameraable players spoke about Tim Sheens' ability to to calm everyone down and get everyone's mind focused on the job, cut out the distractions. But
0: not just this. He had eighty nine, ninety, ninety one. The salary cap issues, like they had like experience and toughness, yes, all yeah. of them.
1: But so, so Laurie Daly said this after a tough twenty-two to nine preliminary final win over North Sydney. Tim gave us a couple of days off to rest and recover, and our normal Tuesday night training session was simply used as a team meeting in which he told us what he expected from us against Canterbury. Control the ball, he said, and it was good advice. <laughs> it's so funny with rugby league coaches, the most rudimentary, rudimentary like fundamental advice can you know be like this like winning edge
0: like well, the best one ever it's always works origin you just said to rip, in. <laughs> we rip in we won
1: but it's so funny because like I, I think every coach would say that same thing so why do you believe some coaches that you need to rip in and other coaches are <laughs> like i don't know do we need to rip in
0: but it's what i'm saying like he, he knows exactly what was needed because he's been there so many times yeah. like well we don't need to train tonight we do it's going to waste our energy and blah 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 um, give him some time to play some golf mm. and it works because yeah. he knows
1: and I think that that is true of all of the great coaches they know when to you know put the hammer down when to relax when to you know it, it all comes down to that individual man management doesn't it
0: I remember about a, 10 years ago Wayne Bennett was the master of knowing when to peak for a long season and other coaches hadn't worked it out yeah. and they were like fizzling out around 16 and Wayne Bennett's going no no you, you peak at the grand final <laughs> <laughs> so
1: <laughs> I wonder if you know Melbourne went through like a, you know, fairly long drought when you look at, you know, the start of their premiership run or grand final run in 2006. Uh, So they won their first legitimate comp in 2012, went through that four or five years where they were consistently top four, consistently going deep into the semis, but not getting it done. And remember over that period, they seemed to always do well over the origin period. I wonder if Bellamy maybe was worry too much about maintaining their momentum during Origin rather than like looking at the finish line.
0: I think he definitely worked it out later that the long season. Yeah. So someone's telling him to control the ball and <laughs> not so many words that he's
1: done so. Uh, so, so let's talk about grand final day. And, and as we usually do when we discuss a grand final, before we get on to the, the, the main event, we talk about the entertainment. This year's grand final entertainment featured a duo of Tommy Emmanuel and Olivia, Olivia Newton-John. That's a good get, right? It is good. All I did was sing the national anthem. (laughs) Like you have Tommy Emmanuel, one of the great guitarists, just playing Advanced Australia Fair" on an acoustic guitar.
0: Can I just give Olivia a bit of credit? I think she's the bigger draw than Tommy Emmanuel. I was get. Well, that's
1: (laughs) that's why I started with Tommy. (laughs) You know,
0: we've got um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Joe Camilleri. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so so yeah so you get Olivia Newton John in to sing the national anthem like
0: it's crazy
1: it's it's so crazy that they thought that was a good use of those talents and the actual grand final entertainment was a celebration of the the four new clubs with you know themed floats for for each of those teams
0: in that era they were forever driving open top cars around the ground yeah
1: it, it was the era of thousands of kids wearing color coded t shirts <laughs> uh, breaking off into sections of the, the field uh it, it's so funny because that really was how grand final entertainment was thought of in that era it was almost like an olympics closing ceremony
0: yeah it was it was They're kind way, of way worse yeah
1: <laughs> so I, I can't really like knock them for it but i mean you did have tina turner the year before singing simply the best live on stage so they understood something of the fact that you I, could... I just
0: can't believe you have olivia newton john there in that era and say do you want to sing zaneda yeah. as well <laughs> Yeah, M- maybe a few greece numbers oh, no, it, oh, i it's... mean you're here yeah <laughs> well, you, you have the microphone <laughs>
1: you know koala blue's not doing too well you could probably <laughs> use the extra lorry <laughs> uh so so yeah so that that's how it went down um so i'll i'll read i'll read the description of of the the floats for those four new clubs just to paint the picture so this uh this was Dar- Darren Hadland uh describing it the Auckland Warriors, South Queensland Crushers, Western Reds, and North Queensland Cowboys all shared the stage at the Sydney Football Stadium on Rugby League's biggest day. Highlighted by a country hoedown, this was a foot stomping introduction to Rugby League 1995 style. There were Maori Warriors laying down the challenge, the Reds sailing in on their yachts, and the Crushers on their gravy train. But the Cowboys stole the show. They rode into town on their wooden cows as the New South Wales Rugby League stepped aside for the Australian Rugby League to take over the Winfield Cup. In season past, the league occasionally has put the show ahead of the football, but this year was different. Everything had a football flavour to it.
0: In what year did they put the show ahead of the uh, football?
1: The, the last time we talked about grand final entertainment, it was uh, the Australian Navy doing a bridge-building exercise. <laughs> so I don't think they were known for putting. What was <laughs> it again? That was eighty-seven. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> But but again, we we go back and forth on the importance of the the grand final entertainment, and in the end, no one cares, no one remembers it. So let let's yeah, it let, let's move to the game.
0: But um, you know what I loved about that, that era of Winfield Cup grand finals was the uh a the build up during the week when you go to the local area, the local Sydney suburb, yeah, and they had the butchers would be dressed up, yeah, yeah. And Belmore was just like that, yeah. This, this year, mm. the bakers had blue and white bread and you know food coloring, and whatever. Uh, down in Canberra as well. Mm. It's so cool. And then they crossed to the Lee's Club all day through all the grades, and they'd be getting drunker and drunker, and, screaming and
1: that that's on my run sheet too because <laughs> that that was those two things were always my favorite favorite thing about grand final day
0: i was so jealous that i couldn't go to the leagues club yeah
1: <laughs> like, I, I remember the first the first time i remember was 88 um canterbury balmain yeah where the, the news that week they do the like cross to norton street or or you know yeah. darling road wherever they'd be and it'd be like black and, and orange and it, then it'd, they'd... it'd be laurie nichols there yeah 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 and it was so cool, and yeah, the, the crosses to the leagues club. But like watching, uh, watching this grand final and looking at the the crosses to camera leagues club. I remember seeing like this guy. I, I, I watched this guy like just taking a big drag on a cigarette inside the leagues club, and I was like, how do we put up with that for so long? <laughs>
0: for like, do you know who started the ball and getting rid of smokes? Rodney Rude. Yeah, he used to bar cigarettes from his own shows because he was doing two thousand shows a year, yeah. <laughs> and he started banning cigarettes in his, and he was one of the first. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, Wow, didn't know that. One of the great men. <laughs> I actually had my own Leagues Club style celebration in my own house in Toronto. So I invited my nan to come up and my dear auntie Denise, who's recently passed, to come up to our house. And it was me, mum and dad and nan and Denise. And I had the paper mache streamers yep. around the roof, yep. around the ceiling, mm. <laughs> balloons and everything. <laughs> like, what a fruit. I, I did the exact same thing. <laughs>
1: like that was, that was my grand final tradition. No matter who was playing, I'd... Get the streamers of one team because I'd, I'd always have some team that I hated, or, or some team to go for. So I, I had the the green, and the good thing about cameras, all green. But you add some yellow, add some blue. You just pick other <laughs> colours that you can get the streamers of, as long as it's primarily green.
0: But my poor mum, like I said, oh, I'm going to decorate the place. You know, so who ended up decorating? It? I might have blown up three balloons. You know? I'm kicking some rolled up socks for some imaginary goalposts. <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> but yeah i oh, i love grand final day it's so
0: cool like this yeah so this is the last one i got to have with my nan it yeah real special to me mm.
1: let's talk about the game itself just just some opening thoughts i'd say not a classic grand final but a highly entertaining one
0: i can't really comment objectively on it definitely entertaining yes yeah. wildly entertaining and but when it's your team you, you can't look at it properly no no yeah very true but obviously it wasn't close so yeah
1: no. When it's your own team, it comes down to did you win or did you lose? The, the rest you don't really worry about.
0: Well, the quality of the football, I think, was very entertaining. But mm. like, I think everyone went to tight grand final. Yeah. Everyone yeah. remembers Broncos, Cowboys. Yeah. yeah.
1: But it, it was a, a pleasure to watch. It was yeah. a pleasure to sit through it again as, as we did, you know, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so I, I thought, like, we, we'd just go, you know, having recently watched the game, we just give some, some, some of our random observations of the game. Yeah. Do, do you want to get us going? Is there anything that stands out for you?
0: Yeah, I remember just being really, uh, really nervous for kickoff and everything. And then there was like a, a drop ball. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: let's start there with with the, the famous drop ball, Martin Bella off the opening kickoff, drops and then really like it, it's it's funny like in hindsight like that could that mightn't have had an effect, but it happened and suddenly it's like from from the moment of that drop the the game was over.
0: Well, at the time, I, I felt sorry for him, and mm. I feel even more so now because he, he's synonymous with like gaffs and brain explosions but he was such a good player
1: Mm. well terry lamb actually like put his hand up and said that bella's eyesight's not that good so terry lamb usually takes that kickoff and for whatever reason there was a breakdown of communication so he kind of wore the blame and said it wasn't really bella's fault
0: either way you've got to catch the first kickoff of the grand final
1: Mm. another pre-game blunder was the coin toss with the decision of canterbury to go against the wind which uh Is is a common trope in that era of of rugby league people like thinking they'll run against the wind and hope to, you know, make the most of it in the second half?
0: I never understood that. Um, Not being a qualified meteorologist, I'm not sure this is accurate, but like, what if the wind's not there in the second half? Which seems to be whatever. (laughs) You're tempting
1: fate when you do that. Like, it seems like any time a team does that, the wind drops and they get no benefit. But I I really like Tim Sheen's quote about it. He said, we got to run the way we wanted. None of us could pick the wind anyway. It's like, exactly. <laughs> you can't pick the wind, so just take it, take it out of the equation. Unless it's like, you know, there's a, a cyclone blowing through, you know, take it, take it out of the equation. And just...
0: It took Sheenzy to, to uh, clarify that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so while we're just giving our own observations, I want to talk a bit about the commentary. Like, Phil Gould was such a standout on the day. Like, I, th- I thought he was sensational.
0: I watch this once a year, this anyway, myself, but uh, it's been maybe one or two years since I saw this game. And in preparation for this, we watched it again. We both said it almost the same time how good was feel good. Yeah. It just makes me sick that we've missed out on this this brilliant analysis just due, due to his personality. Yeah, I know. There was no sort of megalomania, there yeah. was no arrogance. It was just genius analysis.
1: He was so perceptive, so prescient. Like the amount of times he'd say, he'd basically say what was about to happen and then it'd happen like seconds later.
0: It's one of those things where he was match fit in in coaching. Yeah. So he, he's one step ahead of the play. Mm. It was like like in comedy, if you're doing gigs every night, yeah. you, you seem to be on top of everything before mm. it happens. Yeah. And uh, God, it was good.
1: Oh, and this this is going to be an ongoing discussion throughout the season. But I wonder if it was Super League that ruined him because that undoubtedly made him in terms of his position in the game.
0: I think so. I think it definitely did it. It elevated him into a different. Uh, it was just a rugby league player yeah. coach. Yeah. And then he becomes some sort of border somehow. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Just by taking it, heaps of money. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, like it's a real loss, the commentator we could have had, to what we ended up with.
0: He was definitely the standout, but the others were great as well. Sterling, straight off the bat, as a commentator, he was so professional. And so, he's an amazing a- an analyst. Yeah. Underrated still, mm. in my view. Yeah. And uh, Fatty with the funniness, and, and Rabs is the greatest ever. It was a great team.
1: Uh, Gary Belcher was, I uh, never really rated him. I, th- I thought he'd, he's always been very wooden, and yeah. like, I, I don't think he ever really had much to offer. I
0: think that's why Badge is no longer in the uh, yeah. TV. But country. he had a long run, eh? Yeah.
1: Uh, w- one thing I wanted to say about Ray Warren, at, at one point, uh, when Canberra were running up a score, Gary Belcher actually posited, I wonder what the, the grand final record winning score is. Ray Warren said, I'll get that statistic. Like, as if it wasn't known. Like, it's just so, like, weird to me that, like, no one in that team, like, knew off the top of their heads that it was, like, the 75 grand final. Um, Especially since, like, the white boots is, like, (laughs) one of the three rugby league stories to ever get any airtime. And, like, Ray Warren, like, you know, up until a decade ago, like, you have a blue stripe on your black boot and he'll bring up white boots, 75, (laughs) you know?
0: I think he was just caught off guy there, I think. Yeah, yeah.
1: Fair enough, yeah. but that was uh, that was very odd to me that that wouldn't have just been rattled off because he, he
0: knows every other stat mm. in the game. So I think he's just caught. I, I asked Mido. Yeah, <laughs> what if Mido was there then?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Probably. I I, I love the the grand final fashion. I thought uh, Sean McRae was particularly fetching in his like King G shorts <laughs> and uh you know <laughs> and cap. Like I think I said to you off air, he looked like he won a fan contest to run the water that day. <laughs>
0: I should have had a word to his missus.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's Sean McRae, because he he effectively had the same look when he finally got a first grade gig at South, you know, a decade plus later.
0: That Mr. Belvedere style look. Yeah.
1: I think you were never going to make it as a first grade coach looking like that.
0: No, it's it's weird that you're coaching athletes and you're sort of unathletic.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, John Lomax in his leather jacket was another fashion standout for me.
0: He he looked like he'd just been tossed out of a nightclub. (laughs) Like, like, the John Lomax on the sideline was peak John Lomax. Yeah.
1: The the last uh, fashion point I had was, was Cam the Canberra jerseys. Like, I think, in in my view, that's the best jersey they ever had. Quintessential. They got the colour exactly right. Like, yep. for a few years, like, there'd always be, like, a fluctuating either a little bit darker, a little bit lighter. I think those jerseys were perfect.
0: Well, the the 89 Grand Final one was too sort of, like, army-ish. Yeah. yeah. Too uh, light and disgusting looking. Mm. And then you had some... Too bright and various incarnations. That was the perfect hue.
1: Yeah, I think so too. But I also looking at their current uniform, which I think is very good. I, I really like this year's jerseys, and it's it's a very similar color scheme to what they had in '94. But I don't think the '94 jerseys would work today, like that exact shade. Like it seems like something you need a matte finish for, and, and with the like the, the slick, shiny jerseys these days. I, it was a jersey of its time. Yeah, I think so too. It's kind of like the Para ones where they've they've got the the perfect pattern the perfect kind of color scheme with the thin stripes but when you do it in the gold it doesn't quite work with the modern shiny jerseys
0: agreed yeah it was a heavy cotton twill (laughs) it was greg mccallum's final grand final Mm. and he he went out a winner yeah (laughs) (laughs) but he uh he was wearing my favorite ever tnt referee's uniform the pale orange
1: that was that was the classic one for me too awesome yeah they're all good but i like, like the the orange much more than the red
0: I said I remember that McCallum was in orange quite a bit. Mm. What if he just had like, a whole bunch of orange ones. Yeah. And he had red as well. Yeah. But uh, in the pale blue and in the pink was also good. Yeah.
1: Great game. Great great beard, McCallum. One of the great rugby league beards.
0: He was a referee that you could set your clock to, though. Mm. He, he, he wasn't going to be stood over, but he wasn't going to be a lair himself.
1: Who would you... If you had to pick one, Mick Stone or Greg McCallum, McCallum who would you go? It. i go Stone. I always like Stone. Stone was late 80s. Yeah.
0: Um, McCallum was, was more your early 90s, and mm. then... Your hero and mentor, Bill Harrigan, come in <laughs> and took over.
1: So let's let's talk about Canberra's dominance because from that from that opening kickoff, they were you know just an unstoppable steam train. One of, one of those unstoppable forces was Noah Andrew Ku Game of his life. Yeah, yeah.
0: Talk about trying to turn it on as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. But he he made that like sixty meter or so run early in the game. Um, went blind, ran down the touchline gets tackled like inches from touch. And again, you so rarely see it these days, someone taking the sideline on like that.
0: Yeah, it was amazing.
1: But for good reason. Like I think if he tries that today, like, you know, he's in the front row. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) It just just wasn't that common to be smashed over the sideline. Yeah, yeah. Especially if someone that's strong. Yeah. But it was the nonchalance of him getting tackled like a millimeter from the touchline. No one mentions it. Yeah. Just gets up and plays it let nothing happen. I know. Like, it was never, he was never going to be thrown out, but he was very, very close <laughs>
1: to Another early highlight in the game was Terry Lamb getting absolutely belted by Mal Meninga.
0: One of the most underrated hits in Grand Final yeah, history, because yeah. that rattled him to the core. Yeah. And he was staggering around. Yeah,
1: like, it, the, the game was basically over at that point. Like, he played so little part in the rest of that first half.
0: So, we're talking about Ellery Hanley to this day, um, bar smashing him yeah. out of the game. And Mal did the same thing. Yeah, game, yeah, come up a list, yeah. And no one talks about it. No.
1: Uh, and it was a legal hit. Legal, but it just <laughs> enveloped him. Yeah. But w- one of the funny things about the, the dominance of Canberra is most of their tries came off the back of Canterbury Errors, like either, you know, directly from an error or from the ensuing set.
0: Well, but that's, the, that's what a great team does. It forces errors just to mm. fear and then it capitalizes when it has a chance. Yeah. The most noticeable thing for me was Stuart and Bailey. They had the ball on an absolute string. As I said in episode two, they'd covered nearly the width of the field in two passes. <laughs> yeah. It's unstoppable.
1: But the other striking thing about the two of them on the day was how little both of them had to do, really. Like, I, I think they, you know, they probably could have, like, got by with, you know, having one of them out or, like, you know, like, they, they weren't dominant. They weren't, they didn't well, need to be dominant. The, thing, the confidence is more than anything. Yeah.
0: So, well, we saw in 93 what happens when um, Stewart's out. Yeah, yeah. And then, and they yeah, turned it on when he had to.
1: It's funny, daily, how the memory works. Like in my mind, daily, like you know, was crawling like ten meters out from the trial. <laughs> you know, as if he's crossing no man's land. And you know, it was like this slow motion crawl. But it, in reality, it was just you know he gets down and you know a, a, a couple of you know steps on his knees and he he puts the ball down. Yeah, good try, though. Yeah, yeah.
0: That, 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 that's a quintessential grand final try. Mm, yeah. It's not a try you put in the great grand final tries of all time, but it's one you think about it as a as a, as a grand final try. Absolutely. I,
1: I think part of that was, like, how easily transferable it was to um, the the promos. Yeah. Like, it just slotted right into the next year's simply the best, and it was just, you know, like, a perfect moment.
0: Absolutely. While we're on tries, let's talk about Nagus's, uh effort. Yeah. Poetry in motion.
1: I, I know he had some really stiff competition, but watching that game, I was like, how did he miss the, the tour?
0: I think he was just a bit too young. Yeah. Uh, inexperience-wise. So, just guys in front of him. Yeah. He, obviously, he, he was good enough. Yeah, do yeah. down. Yeah, as
1: I said, some really stiff competition, but, you know, like, you got to have a bolter. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly do. <laughs> All right, well, let, let's do it. Let's talk about number 46, Paul Osborne. One of the One of the great grand final stories that I don't think we're talking about anywhere near enough
0: it's it deserves an episode on its own
1: yeah
0: uh, being the worst judge in football history I'm there as a 14 as a year old going why is he picking Paul Osborne he doesn't even play what a dummy like, <laughs> we're missing John Lemons, I was freaking out I'm like, he's gonna he's gonna be a liability they're gonna be running around him he's too slow you know well
1: all... you're by no means the only person to think that which I'll get to but let's just set up Paul Osborne for a moment so he played in St George for a number of years had never never made a semi-final series with them. Goes to Canberra. St George go on to make two grand finals in his absence. The two years that Canberra bombed in the finals. <laughs> At during, mid-season 1993, he was basically told that he didn't have a place in Canberra's future. He was too old, too slow. Um, this is the crazy thing to me. He was 27 in 1993. He looked
0: about 45.
1: I know it's crazy, but so he was basically told like the games passed you by. Cameras pass you by. If we make the grand final, you're not going to be in the squad. So he went to Tim Sheens and said, what can I do? And Sheens said, oh, you got to work on your speed, You know, make a few changes, which he duly did and got back into the team. Uh, of course, there was not going to be a grand final appearance in 1993. But so 1994, he did get back into the, the team, but basically the same thing happened. Some younger, stronger, bigger, better players came along. He spent most of the back half of the season in reserve grade and was told that there'd be no place for him in the team in 1995. And this time there was to be no reprieve, so he had to make other plans. So he was all set to pack his bags and head off to England. He landed a deal with Featherstone and had his bags packed before the grand final to, to head out there and end his playing tenure with Canberra. Uh, lo and behold, John Lomax gets sent off, and Tim Sheen said, we we may need you, you can't get on that plane.
0: Was it SOS?
1: Well, I think you've got to be on the plane for it to be an SOS. <laughs> I think if you're still, you know, in the squad, uh, it's it's not an SOS. But so he had a decision to make. Do I take a chance, like uh, possibly when you had Wesley, when you had Hetherington, a, you know, possibly unlikely chance of getting a grand final appearance. Do you take that over some security, a chance to play football and, you know, go out with a, you know, a, a good couple of years to end your career. See,
0: this is the part that's overlooked. Um, even I've forgotten about that part. I mean, it's a real sliding doors moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so it truly was. And after delaying his decision with Featherston and buying more time, he eventually said, I'm going to stay, lost his deal with Featherston, uh, and at that point was no certainty to make the grand final squad.
0: I wonder how much of Sheens' decision was impacted by the fact that he that he sacrificed like that.
1: I actually think very little. I, I don't think Sheen's would have been sentimental about it.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. But like, I don't know. But, but at the time, it was like David Wesley's a great player.
1: Yeah, I, I think it all came to came down to the game plan Sheen's had in mind. Uh, and if you, but but it was a, a massive question mark. And you know, you said you were going. What is he doing? Osborne's own teammates were were saying the same thing. <laughs> so, in, in the aftermath, you had you know Laurie Daly in his book saying you know Aussie produced 20 minutes of gold for the, for us that day on and on, and then Malmaninger in his book saying Tim pulled off a master stroke in the grand final with his decision to use Paul Osborne. So a lot of praise in the aftermath, but at the time, uh, this this quote comes from a video special that league put out, which you can find on YouTube uh, from a few years ago. So the video is called Big League, the grand final hero, which is, it goes for about four minutes and it's absolutely brilliant. And I'm just going to read this quote from Tim Sheens. After the suspension, I had to make a decision as to who was coming in. Anyway, I grabbed the senior guys. That would be Mal, Laurie, Ricky, Steve Walters, I think, from memory. And we went into a private box there at Bruce. And I said, look, John's out. We're going to have to pick someone to start. What are your thoughts? Different players were thrown up. Brett Hetherington was favorite. He sort of played off the bench for John anyway. But I said, no, I want to go to Paul Osborne. There was a fair kerfuffle about it, I can tell you. I don't think he had their total support. Uh, and then he goes on and, and said, eventually they agreed on the basis, or if I really pulled his ears in about trying to push the pass. Um, Sideline to that, my door nearly got kicked off its hinges when Hetherington found out he wasn't selected. The door burst open and in he came. I thought he was going to pick me up and drop me on my head, but anyway, I sat him down and jumped all over him and said, if you don't shut up, you won't get on at all. <laughs> but so it was a clear game plan that Sheen's wanted to use his ability to offload and he actually switched Nangus and Andrew who as a part of that plan and there was a real a real idea in his head that was just pulled off to absolute perfection
0: that there is an example of how is this guy underrated as a coach yeah. that is that is a literal masterstroke mm. and a gamble yeah. if that failed he would have been uh, his career would have been over pretty yeah, much yeah
1: exactly and so you know, for anyone who doesn't know the story, so not long after that Martin Bella drop, uh, Osborne, you know, takes the ball up, gives a beautiful offload to David Ferner to go over for Canberra's first textbook try. Textbook offload. Uh, does the same thing about 15 minutes later, from about 40 meters out, gives the ball to Ken Nagus, who's off, scores, um, does all but take the game out of Canterbury's hands in that moment. And as Sheen said, a few minutes after that, Osborne tried to push another pass. Uh, the ball went down. Can- Canterbury recovered, and a large hook came onto the field and, <laughs> well, and got him off. The,
0: the, com- the commentators were saying, um, "Do you leave him on, or do you stick to the twenty minutes original game plan?" And, and they all unanimously said, "You've got to stick with the twenty minute game." Yeah,
1: plan. yeah, exactly. And, and again, I think it was Gould that that was the one who came out and said that.
0: Yeah, just absolutely. He won the grand final for him.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: and it was magical.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely was. And in the aftermath, so obviously John Lomax was a, a very disappointed figure, missing the game. Um, there's all, you know, the, the classic story of Laurie Daly telling him to get on stage to get a medal and they won't take it off him. Um, but seeing, seeing Lomax and, and Osborne arm in arm, like, you know, celebrating the victory together, um, really special moment.
0: Yeah. I feel bad for John, but mm. in the enforcer business, that's what happens. Yeah. But like, let's talk about Osborne's play there. Watching it back. What what I was angry about at the time was he, he was known for having been so slow, at, uh, in the game that passed him by. The old rebellion trope, he was running on the same blade of grass up and down. But in this grand final in the first 20 there, he was fluid and he was quick.
1: Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The other thing is how much that performance harkened back to the old school. When you hear players of the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, they love a ball playing front rower like Joey loves late footwork. (laughs) This this quote by uh, Frank Hyde really kind of sums up the way all of these blokes feel about like front row play. On some afternoons these days on which I see a game loaded with hit-ups, I mourn for the skills of a Harry Barth or a Brian McTeague. In their own way, such men were poetry in motion. Today, the forward skills are limited to glimpses. In the 1994 grand final, Canberra's Paul Osborne, who only got a game through sheer chance, put on two tries with beautiful passes and was duly struck off the club's books. Osborne's effort in chopping up Canterbury with old-fashioned ball-playing skill was a lovely piece of rugby league nostalgia. Yeah, it was uh... and And Osborne, like took it in good humour like uh, you know Tim Sheen's in that big league video Tim Sheen said that that Aussie will you know call himself the grand final hero and you know <laughs> talk himself up but but in reality you know this, this is a lot closer to his actual thoughts so this was from a match report in, in the Herald uh, after the grand final a lot of blokes running around superstars and internationals haven't played in the grand final I'm just a nobody and I've won one
0: well that's a bit harsh because he wasn't a nobody he was a very good property yeah, but, yeah. Um, nice humility there but the guys in grand final folklore, In the mm. top three, four, yeah. five moments yeah. in grand final folklore,
1: and and again, I, I feel it's a way underrated grand final moment. Yeah, you know? it was tighter. I think. The game yeah, was yeah, yeah. I think that's the other issue. But either
0: way, he, he won the game for them. Yeah.
1: Mm. Uh, so <laughs> let let's spend a couple of minutes talking about Paul Osborne's post football life. Well, aren't um, we supposed to celebrate the guy? <laughs> <laughs> very very interesting career. Started started out uh, as an ACT politician, roped his old captain Mal. In, into into the game <laughs> didn't last too long but uh just just a little um when i when i was looking at his p- political career one standout for me was he backed he was running an independent and backed a, a liberal woman who got in as premier um, and she later got into trouble or you know lost her job or whatever uh because partly because uh a bruce stadium Um, scandal where so there was a refurbishment of the stadium that was supposed to cost 27 million dollars half of it paid by uh private money uh it blew out to end up costing 87 million (laughs) dollars all paid for by the government
0: (laughs) (laughs) even in rugby league uh excess i think it's a few kickbacks in there (laughs)
1: Uh, and then went on to take the top job at the eels where um where at a Dural Woolworths, he was um, handed a, a fine by the police for failing to pay for his items <laughs> at the self check.
0: Now, I've laughed at this so hard in my time, right? But we don't know if it was a legitimate mistake because I, I walk around like a zombie half the time.
1: I, I think there's no doubt it was a legitimate mistake.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it's just funny because he's the CEO of a club. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, wearing his Eels, his you know, polo at the yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh Problem is, I think about that as much as I think about the grand final. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: and then he ended up resigning his his post over financial mismanagement at the Eels, which uh, he he actually was cleared of any you know of any intentional wrong wrongdoing. But uh, this was just unintentional incompetence. Yeah, basically this, this this statement kind of sums up why he lost his job. So one of the clubs' ma- one of the club's directors, Glenn Duncan, was also um, the boss of Pertec, who was their sponsor at the time. Um, He quit the board because they failed to take action over over Paul Osborne, Uh, and it said, Mr. Duncan had been concerned at allegations of financial irregularities associated with Mr. Osborne's conduct. They included a $35,000 bill on Osborne's club credit card and the fact that the accounts department had to chase him for the repayment of $9,500 in money he'd collected from the sale of club jerseys. (laughs) The club's chairman, Roy Spagnolo, became embroiled in the affair when it was revealed that he had personally loaned Mr. Osborne a large sum of money. That money had not been repaid, and Mr. Spagnolo had failed to dis- disclose the debt to the board when it was deliberating on Mr. Osborne's future. I mean, how murky is that? Yeah, very murky. So uh, he was cleared, but resigned his post. And uh... how was he cleared? <laughs>
0: I'd rather not even talk about it because like, that era of Parramatta administration is the just the poster boy for terrible rugby league administrations.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, that bright new day that Dennis Fitzgerald's removal was going <laughs> to bring in.
0: I always think of like, um, these like long-term sponsors of basket case clubs, like what that does to their brand and what, yeah, what yeah. they get out of paying all this money.
1: <laughs>
0: but When I think of Pertec, I, I don't think, what a great company. I think, oh, geez, that Paramount <laughs> yeah, right,
1: But back to the game itself. So the flip side for Paul Osborne was Scott Wilson, Canterbury fallback, who ended up being dragged after 30 minutes. So sad. So sad and like, it wasn't a Steve Maven or Marvin type performance from Wilson. Like he, he dropped a couple of balls, but I think Daryl Halligan was at least as bad.
0: He, but he, he had that image, see? The party boy, blonde, yeah. brain explosion, flamboyant player. Mm. So when he drops the ball, it gets magnified. Yeah, And the, the balls he dropped was swirling torpedo yeah. bombs yeah. that you'd be lucky to catch on a good day.
1: And it's so funny, like it that, you know, one moment like basically derailed his career. Like he was cut from Canterbury. Played, you know, another, you know, two or three years at, I think, Gold Coast and where do you go? The, went Gold Coast, Reds and Cowboys. Well,
0: in the previous ep, we talked about Jackson Taylor having the bad rap because of the resting bitch face. Yeah. Uh, male version. Scotty Wilson had the bad rap for being the, you know, the party boy. Mm.
1: But yeah, so just those those little moments, the way they can just reshape a player's, you know, fortunes, just one game. It's, I, I guess that's that's the nature of it, isn't it? It is, yeah.
0: It's, that's why... Uh, Winners win, win losers lose. To quote mm. Fifty Cent.
1: <laughs> uh, let, let's talk about the Clive Churchill Medal. So, not Paul Osborne, although you know he gave it a real shot. But so David Ferner got it. Um,
0: who else do you think had a shot? So like Noah had a shot.
1: I I, th- I think so. Don Ferner, who was a um, one of the judges of the Clive Churchill Award, um,
0: is that the most appropriate thing?
1: No, it's not. And so he actually voted for Steve Walters because he didn't want the. You know the accusation of, of nepotism but it's like why not recuse yourself from voting <laughs> when you know that your son is playing in the game and take away those you know, you know, like, it's just so weird to me that he would like compromise the vote you know to to get away from nepotism when like <laughs> insane but yeah. i gotta say i think steve walters would have been a good choice i thought he yeah. had a very good game
0: um as always with steve boxer walters he was in the top few players mm. But uh, I think they got it right, to be honest.
1: I think they got it right, too. Like, in a game with no, like, obvious standout, I I think he was the closest thing to a standout.
0: Yeah, great player, man.
1: As we talked about in our uh, discussion of the Canberra squad, there remains to this day a perception that one good game put him on the plane to England, when the reality is that he'd been solidly building a case for himself all year. And in the grand final coverage, there was actually quite a bit of talk during the game. That you know he was a key, you know, keen contender for a kangaroo spot.
0: My thoughts on Ferner is the Croker Ferner thing can be debated for a hundred more years, and they both would have been wouldn't have been out of place. We know mm. that, but Ferner offered more against the the Brits with that footwork, yeah, he, and the goal kicking. You know, and uh, it's it just more of a handful than Croker. Mm. So if it was going to be a tie, I think they got it right. Yeah, even for that, I, I
1: can't argue with that. And yeah, so Croker at that stage of his career could do a lot of things very well but it's he didn't necessarily have anything that would strike fear into yeah. the england team where i think ferner did have that little edge there yeah uh, and the other i guess main talking point of the game was sending mal out a winner which Canberra really did the ease with which they did win that game left somewhat of an empty feeling within mal who said at the end of the game that he felt kind of empty like it, w- it was just a bit of an anti-climax <laughs>
0: never ask Mel for a quote because like, they're always terrible every big moment he's been asked for a quote yeah. it what?
1: yeah so this was his exact quote it's strange but I feel empty we won so easily didn't we it's hard to get excited about it a bit of an anticlimax really cheers I, I thought uh, it, it was a really um, nice moment it, during the presentation with Terry Lamb on the stage you know honouring Malmenenga. And when you think about those two blokes, like, the amount of time they'd been around. Yeah. Both more or less starting at the same time around 1980. uh, Think about, like, how different the game was over the course of those 14 years.
0: It's astounding when you think about it.
1: Whereas now, like, you look back at 2005, like, that could be last year or the year before. Like, it it feels like the change from 80 to 1994 was, like, exponential. Well, when you think
0: about this as well, 94, they were semi-professional stuff, yeah. right? No not not everyone was professional. No, yeah. <laughs> so Mel would have been, but mm. he's now, you know, the master coach of Queensland, but he finished playing when they were still training like three times a yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing.
1: Yeah. Uh, and to, you know, tease next week week's episode a little bit that's going to be a major point of discussion as we look at the the growth of the game in the Winfield Cup era that, you know, indirectly led to Super League. The the changes that were ratcheted in over that decade were um really, you know, astounding in terms of rugby league especially with it's as we've spoken about the inability to you know achieve cultural change in rugby league the powers that be in the 80s did a lot uh that you know kind of led to super league absolutely so so let's talk about the presentation a bit more did you have any other highlights from that
0: no i just love the old presentations.
1: one thing that like struck me like richard wilkins as mc (laughs) like what was he doing anywhere near the stage (laughs) i I know he was like you know the 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 go-to guy but
0: he was, he was like, yeah, he was on the way up, at young and cool, back then. yeah,
1: I'd, really, really cast a cast a shadow over proceedings for me. I like Richard. <laughs> <laughs>
0: like, like my favorite thing from old presentations, Origins Test Grand Finals is the old club official, the Brill official, yeah, with the blazer mm. you know, and the club tie, etc. The best.
1: Uh, Ken Arthurson's readiness to to praise Winfield, like he he just will insert a Winfield like comment into <laughs> any way he can get it.
0: It's hard hard to judge someone on, on a different era, but looking back and you sit the cigarette shilling, it's despicable. Yeah, yeah. It, it, like it just puts a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. Anyhow, have a Winfield.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of Winfield and and the Winfield Cup, more more specifically, it, it was in a Peter Fitzsimons column where he he noted this. And watching watching it in the presentation was really striking to me. The lack of a base on the Winfield Cup, like when Mal <laughs> lifted it, it was just this like. Hollow underside. <laughs> it's like it couldn't be that hard to like put a base on on your trophy. You know? we're,
0: we're forever having trophy problems in, in every league.
1: <laughs> no, no, I loved uh, the the post match interviews. Laurie Daly in particular, where he was being interviewed by Tim Sheridan, and his eyes are just darting from side to side for the duration of the interview. He didn't look at Sheridan or the camera once. Um, it was it was classic Laurie, like very excitable and.
0: But how far has he come from, you know, the naive country boy to the media yeah. the media, the yeah, slick yeah. media analyst mm. he is today? One of them bring up the, the differential now between grand final rings, a.k.a. American style, versus the old grand final medal. Yeah. Which is basically like the Bicentennial medal from school <laughs> in some sort of cheap red case.
1: <laughs> uh, I, I miss that, actually. I, I find the rings just a bit, a bit too American.
0: Yeah, right. It was very Aussie, the medal, that's for sure. <laughs>
1: Uh well, let's talk about the party because I, I think it would have been a fairly sedate one as as far as grand final parties go.
0: Well as Mal said how could you get excited?
1: Yeah. Uh so some some good stories from the party though, with Ricky Stewart uh left stranded uh you know in, in the early hours of the morning having to get to the airport to make his plane to Sydney for the kangaroo tour.
0: <laughs> I mean do they need to have the kangaroo tour thing the day after the grand final?
1: It's it's crazy that they they play a grand final they celebrate and they're expected to be on a plane to England like 12 hours later. Like the squads, they don't even have time to pack their bags. They name the squad after the grand final. Any selected player has to just pack his bags and hightail it to the airport instantly.
0: <laughs> the scheduling.
1: So, yeah, so he ended up having to to get some, some journalists who were on the scene to give him a lift to the airport to make his flight.
0: No rugby player is ever... Short of a lift, there's always yeah. someone flagging <laughs> down someone, running into someone.
1: Luke DeVico wasn't expected to play that day, so he actually decided to, to head to the game with his mates in a minibus. Uh, so, you know, all the boys were there, they were going to watch the game together. Luke DeVico at one point thought he'd go down to the sheds to, to wish the team luck, and, you know, and Tim Sheen saw him and said, Luke, why aren't you in uniform? because he was in the extended squad oh, right. and then so he had to to kid up and then he was on the field like you know doing warm-ups with the team <laughs> <laughs> so his, his mates roll in the stands going oh there's luke
0: so what would have happened if he didn't bump into him jeans yeah know, he's, where's the figure <laughs> he's, in, he's, in, he's in road g <laughs> uh
1: so you know the, the the as i said the party went long into the night uh lorry daly made up his own version of the tune Yankee Doodle Dandy which the actual lyrics of his version haven't been printed but so that they had, you know, some some good proceedings but as I said, I don't think it would have been up there with some of the great grand final hey, winning on. parties So the
0: highlight of it was Laurie Daly making up a parody song to Yankee Doodle yeah, Dandy Yeah,
1: so that kind of tells you that, you know, uh, that it, it wasn't the most exciting party
0: It's really actually put a dander on this chat that Mel Meninga wasn't that thrilled about it You've so gone out a winner after having the greatest career of all time. You're on your fourth Kangaroo tour.
1: <laughs> well, I think that's the other thing. Like he, he did have a plane to catch the next morning. <laughs> you know, the the career was over. But in a sense, like in a time when being the Australian captain, going on your fourth Kangaroo tour meant something historic. Like you could see that it was, you know, maybe understand why it was kind of anticlimactic to finish your grade career. Yeah,
0: fair enough. Annoying to me
1: there. Where where would you rank the the grand final parties? just just thinking maybe since 89 on which which do you think well, would be the
0: um i was in newcastle in 97 i was turning 18 17 18 and that was absolutely incredible
1: so for me that and panthers 91 that's 1a and 1b knowing knowing the cast of characters involved in each of those teams what it meant to to those communities i, I think those would have been about the best ones
0: but how can you beat joey johns with the jester hat yeah. on the skateboard yeah
1: yeah that's that's you know rocking up at Daniel Johns' house and <laughs> singing Freak you know <laughs> yeah that's pretty unassailable
0: I mean it wasn't there honestly but uh, 89 camera must have been up there yeah
1: I think uh, probably 2016 Sharks would have been uh, up there as well in terms of more modern ones
0: I'm surprised anyone turned up <laughs> they don't turn up down there but, uh, I mean nothing's going to beat burning down the grandstand at Paramount yeah 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 <laughs> 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 <Arson. laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, so for every party, there's a meeting, so let's talk about canterbury and uh, again, not like the not the most heartbreaking loss when it was so emphatic uh, but the funny thing is there was a lot of talk from Canterbury how confident they were on the day, and that's the the funny thing about hindsight where you know we can read all these accounts from Canterbury going we we knew we weren't going to lose
0: there's just some key moments mean yeah thinking, and, and I think it's actually there's no disgrace in being blown off the park by a team that can blow teams off the park. Mm. Almost better than losing close. Yeah. Because they were blown off the park in the first 20 minutes. It was over. But we go back to the male knocking out Lamb. He's their rugby league He's their talisman.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and there's no guarantee that they were going to go on and win the next year, you know. But it, it, it counts for something having that experience and, and getting up there. And you went from Terry Lamb being the only player in the team with grand final experience to now most of the team having that. Yeah, for sure. So, and that, that's how it played out. I want to talk now about the, the legacy of that Canberra squad, you know, so we, we can think of them as a historic team. They had a quarter of the Kangaroo squad that year <laughs> with three or four players unlucky to not make the team. Yeah, yeah. So my first question is, did they do enough? In what way? In only winning that one comp. I mean, oh. I mean you can call it three comps if you want to group it as one era. No, it's a different era. I, I think it's a different okay. era too.
0: Ninety-three, we've been through it in the yeah. previous episodes. They would have won it most likely, um, or at least given it a good shake. If not for the injury to Stewart, can't blame them for that. Uh, Ninety-five, I don't know what happened, mm. uh, and it was over.
1: Like well, they lost what, like four games or something regular season. They were, you know,
0: it was just a, it was a grand final hangover, is what it was. Yeah,
1: yeah. But so on the one hand, it it shows you how hard it is to win back to back.
0: Well, I know I know what happened. The Kangaroo Tour wouldn't have helped. No. Can you go and play an extra sixteen games? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then come back and mm. defend it comp.
1: But I think it's a legitimate question in terms of their legacy as one of the great teams, which when you look at their 94 form, when you look at that team on paper, it's easy to say they're one of the great teams. But did they do enough to, to deserve?
0: I think so. Um, just everyone knows. You, you look at it and you know. like So Jonathan Thurston won one comp, really, yeah. with North Queensland. But they'll look at that as like, oh, it's a great grand final. Mm. What a great team. And what a great player. It's only one, it's only one comp and then the the Canberra one, obviously, but uh, you ask anybody in rugby league, teams of the 90s, I'll say 94 Raiders, 92 Broncos.
1: I do think, though, they needed to go on with it to elevate themselves from a great team in their era to one of the great teams. Like, I don't think you can say it's a historic team like you might talk about south of the 20s, east of the 30s, so on and so on.
0: Historic in terms of, uh, you know, records accumulated in comps one, no, but historic in, like, best squads, Mm. we'll talk about it during the series but 95 was a write-off just hangover yeah then super league comes in Mm. 96 and 97 very disruptive yeah so who knows what would have happened it does
1: make it hard to weigh it up as we spoke about in our prelude to to this season Mm. uh do you so 89 to 91 very little turnover in those teams so you can consider that one team one era yeah and then 94 the second era do you think 94 is the better team
0: See, that's the thing. They've got a better record in the first yeah. incarnation, but it's a much better team in 94. I
1: think exactly. the, the competition they had was bigger in 94. You know, I think there were better teams yeah. than that first Canberra team had to play against.
0: Absolutely. Basically in the side. Yeah, with, yeah. With, with a few Q internationals. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like when you look at that 89 team, even though you had the same nucleus and some other, you know, the, you know, the likes of Chika Ferguson, Dean Lance. Matthew you know, Wood, Br- Gary Coyne. Yeah, yeah. So, I th- I think on balance, the 94 teams a much better team. I'd-, I'd give it to them.
0: Use the word balance. It was so well balanced. Mm. You had strike everywhere. Yeah. No weak links.
1: But so, you say it was a balanced squad, and yeah, it was. Like, they wouldn't have been able to do what they did without dominant forwards. But as we said uh, a couple of episodes ago, when you think about that team, it is the backline you think about first. So, I wanted to spend a bit of time, as we finish, just weighing up that backline against some other great backlines. So... The first thing I wanted, wanted to have a look at was all international backlines. So Brett Mullins, Ken Nagus, Mel Meninga, Ruben Wiki, Noan Andruku, Laurie Daly, and Ricky Stewart. So you had Mullins, Meninga, Wiki, Daly, and Stewart, all current internationals in 1994. Nagus played later in 97. Uh, Noan Andruku played for Fiji in 1995. Mm-hmm. So an all international backline, but not all current international backlines. And I've tried to find an example of an all-current international backline, and I haven't been able to. So you had some near misses with those Broncos squads of the 90s. So 98, Darren Lockyer, Michael Hancock, you could, who you could sub in for Mick Devere, Steve Renoff, Darren Smith, who you could sub in for Tony Carroll, <laughs> Wendell Saylor, Kevin Walters, and Alan Langer. So very loaded team there. Yeah. Um, but again, so a, a couple of those players were future internationals, not current.
0: But we need to judge these backlines on how they were playing in that yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Not all over career. Yeah,
1: so I, I, I agree with that. I think 1994, Canberra, I, I think...
0: Well, honestly, I think 98 gives it a run for its money.
1: I think, actually, um, maybe the, the early 90s one, when it was so stacked that you had Wally Lewis and Gene Miles both playing in the forwards. Yeah. So, 1990, Paul Hoff, Michael Hancock, Peter Jackson, Chris Johns, Willie Kahn, Kevin Walters, Alan Langer.
0: Uh, I think the other one is better.
1: Ninety one, Dale Shearer, Michael Hancock, Steve Renoff, Chris Johns, Willie Kahn, Kevin Walters, Alan Lang. That's like, probably up there, yeah. That's you know, <laughs> there's they're some class teams. Um as as I said last week, we're gonna uh source some some information and some stats from friend of the show Andrew Ferguson as often as we can because he because we, we really need all the help we can get. So I I you know want to lean on his knowledge and experience whenever we can. So he threw up some other great backlines. So some early ones, East in 1908 and 1913, when you had the likes of Dan Frawley, Dally Messenger, uh, Albert Rosenfeld, you know Les Cubitt, Arthur Holloway. So a couple of stacked teams there. Go on to North Sydney in 1922, where you had Ted Taplin, Cess Blinkhorn, Herman Peters, Frank Rowl, Harold Horder, Dallas Hodgins, and Duncan Thompson. Again, with those teams, you're seeing some all-time greats with some some players that we don't know as much about now. And I think maybe when you look at '94 Raiders. That's kind of going to be true when you had, like, blokes like Nandruku, Nagus, Wiki, who... Wiki had a, you know, great, great career, great Hall of Fame career. He was only young. And you don't really think of him as, like, a center as much as you do in the later part of his career. So, this
0: is my point about you're saying it's... And you're correct that everybody thinks of it as a backline team, but they were very young. And it was mm. consi- it was actually more a forward team. Yeah. It was a halves team. Yeah. But everything was built from the forwards.
1: mm yeah.
0: You take Ponger Lomax out of that side and look out.
1: And I think that's when you go to St. George 1964 when you had, as we talked about in the last episode, Graham Langlands, Johnny King, Reg Gaznia, Billy Smith, Eddie Lumsden, Brian Clay, George Evans, and then you look at the forwards they had as well, Johnny Raper, Kevin Ryan, Ian Walsh, Hooker, Norm Proven, etc., etc. So, um,
0: well, speaking of hookers, somehow he's still underrated, Steve Walters. Yeah. Now this was at his peak of his powers. Ninety-four Kangaroo Tour. He was at the absolute peak of his powers. Revolutionised the hooking role to become hooker forward. Before it was like Tony Ray types.
1: Yeah. We've underrated him. We've barely talked about yeah. him in in four episodes in talking about this camera team.
0: Yeah, I don't know why why we've done that. It's yeah. just somehow slides under the radar. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I I didn't underrate him at the time. He was my top in my top three players. Mm. As I said, stop the Saab to sign the cards at the <laughs> marathon. That's a stand up guy. <laughs> But he revolutionized the position. Yeah. And 94, Tengaruzo, which we'll get to. Beautiful.
1: So peak Steve Walters, but also Steve Walters very near the edge of the cliff too. Like it was... Yeah. One one thing I want to, to shout out as potentials in terms of when we're looking back at Legacy. I think we've had two potentially all-time backlines in the last couple of years. Like look at the Roosters last year. James Sedesco, Daniel Tupo, Latrell Mitchell, Joseph Manu, Blake Ferguson, Luke Keary, Cooper Cronk.
0: See that is in the same position as Canberra in the in Manu with uh, Trello very young, Yeah. But when they retire. Yeah, exactly. They so, they're going to be looked back upon as yeah. so immortal. I, probably.
1: I think that's a that's a backline that maybe in, in 10 years or so, if the careers pan out the way we're thinking of, that people will go, wow, that was a loaded team.
0: Well, I'll just say this. I was looking at Steve Smith's stats a couple of years ago, thinking, this guy's going to be one of the all-time great stats. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing you know, so don't count your chickens.
1: Uh, and the same year, just the same thing, just the year before. Melbourne Storm 2017, Billy Slater, Suli Asi, Vunavalu, Will Chambers, Curtis Scott, Josh Adokar, Cameron Munster, Cooper Cronk. I
0: don't think that's in the same class as... Uh...
1: I, I think Curtis Scott kind of has gone off the boil this year, but he was tracking that way. I think having Slater and Cronk there, plus Cameron Munster at a time when he was starting to become really ascendant, I think it's another one that could be looked at in a few years True. a bit differently to now.
0: It's just you look at the Raiders, Yeah, Mullins in his peak year doing some of the best things we've seen in 100 years of football. Then you had the halves, who were two of the best ever, and then the, the, probably the best combination ever. Mal, like, still doing it. Yeah. It amazing.
1: So as as we finish up, uh, I th- and we are you know, finally going to be in some way talking about Super League in, in the episodes going forward, I think this series of episodes was really important in setting up Super League, partly to, to give you the context of Rugby League in 1994. But when you think about how many of the, the people we've talked about are key players in Super League and you wouldn't have had Super League having the impact it did if you didn't have like Daly and Stewart like, you know, right in the thick of it, you know, signing, you know, from the start. Like, I think it's it's easy for younger younger rugby league fans to to not, uh, to, to discount, you know, a career like Ricky Stewart's because he's seen, you know, immortals come since. But it, it's important to remember how, Good, these players were, and how like how high they descended in 1994.
0: Absolutely, but if you went to any of these recent immortals' careers or, or, or soon to be immortals like Thurston and have said, just when you're hitting your peak uh, of your powers, can we just um just have a civil war in the game? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh do you have any closing thoughts on on this camera team that I know you know holds strong memories for you?
0: In my lifetime, it's, it's my favorite football team ever, club football team. And uh, I think many people across the game feel the same way. It's just, it was it was a magical time in the game. Yeah,
1: no doubt. And I hope we've conveyed that over these last four episodes. Uh, 1994 really was a fantastic year for rugby league. I don't think that's just us giving our own rose-coloured memories of childhood. I think it was, you know, uh, watching these highlights, which you can see many of on YouTube, uh, it was a really exciting time for on-field, along with everything else that was going on. So it, it will quickly deteriorate from there going into season 1995 which we'll be covering in detail but next week's episode we're actually going to be going back to the start looking at the rise of rugby league in the the Ken Arthurson era so from taking over from Kevin Humphries in 1983 looking at those changes that came into the game and how much better placed rugby league was in 1994 than it had been a decade earlier so uh, as I said, we'll be back next week with that. Uh, We'd love to hear your thoughts. Send us an email to the therugbyleagdigest at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter, and we will speak to you next week.